Hello and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Reports podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Chiara Gianvito, and I'd like to welcome our guest for today's episode, Amy Camilleri Zara. Today, we'll be discussing Amy's recent research on counselors' perceptions of disability, as well as diving into her own personal experiences. Let's get into today's conversation. So, hi, Amy. It's so nice to have you on today. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure for me to be here. <laughs> yes, it's absolutely an honor. Um, so, yeah, to begin, I kind of wanted to give our audience a definition of the terms disability and impairment, as well as kind of an overall understanding of the social model of disability. Okay, yes, so um, the social model of disability um, stemmed from mainly the UK disability movement. So um, in the 70s, we had this group of um, uh, people, the majority of them had a, a physical impairment or of a physical nature. They came together, again, the majority of them had been living in an institution. So, um, uh, you know, they were kind of experiencing um, uh, being ostracized from the rest of society, um, being told what, what to do and, you know, when to get up and when they could have their lunch and dinner, etc. So they came together, they started by, um, uh, if I remember correctly, it was Paul Hunt who had written a letter in The Guardian and asked others to kind of join him. Um, uh, it was done a bit in a way, in, not in secret, but um, since they were living in a residential institution um, being run by a big NGO, they were kind of, you know, a bit, um, everything had to be done over letters. Obviously, there was no internet, there was no emails. Um, anyway, they then later formed um, uh, an organization called UPIET, which is the Union of the Physically Impaired Against Segregation. Um, and they were the ones who actually came up with the social model of disability. Um, uh, and it's uh, basically the social model um, for a number of years, you know, institutions and policies were run on what we know as the medical model of disability. So disability is perceived as something from a medical perspective, as something which is wrong, that disabled people need to be fixed, to be made normal. Um, and they were kind of all against it. So they said, you know, let's come up with something which um, uh, turns that on, on, on its head, kind of. And they came up with the social model of disability. And two key points that came out of the social model of disability is the distinction between um, disability and impairment. So they make this specific distinction in the way we understand both terms. So they said impairment is the biological reality. So in my case, I have a, a mobility impairment, a physical impairment. Um, it could be a visual impairment. It could be um, a hearing impairment. So that is the biological aspect of it. So society can't really do anything um, on that. Okay. However, they they define disability as um, the the social aspect of it that we are made disabled because society does not cater for the needs of persons with disability. So when when I'm lecturing about this, I tell my students if all Malta um, or all Europe or all Canada were accessible, we would still have people with impairments, but we would not necessarily have disabled people. 
So, um, uh, you know, disability is a social construct. We, we encounter um, disability because we encounter obstacles in our daily lives, which are very often um, uh, created by how society is, is, um, is planned, is, is, you know, works. Um, so disability is not something which is inherent. It's not something that I have, but that society creates for me. Um, and again, I give the example. So in my apartment, it's all accessible. I go down to my um, to the garage. I have a car, which is I can drive. I go to my office at university, which is accessible. At no point do I feel disabled, you know, from then. But if I had to go to Valletta, which is the capital city of Malta, and I want to go to a coffee shop and they have stairs and they, there's no lift, then it is at that point that I feel disabled. So this is the distinction that the social model makes. So the impairment is the biological reality, which is there and it will always be there. But disability is something that is created by society because it does not take into consideration the needs of people with different impairments. Uh, I want to add as well, it's not obviously just um, a physical impairment, but the fact that, for example, most, um, uh, I don't know, programs on television might not have subtitles. So, so that is creating disability for people with a visual, uh, with a hearing impairment, sorry. Um, uh, so it could be, you know, or for people with intellectual impairment, not having access to the right, um, to the information, to the right information that's accessible to them. Um, taking into COVID uh, into consideration, for example, um, not making the information available to people with a visual impairment, with a hearing impairment, and with an intellectual impairment. So those are kind of the examples of um, disability um, uh, as put forward by the social model of disability. Thank you so much for sharing with us. I think it's important to have the distinction and to kind of use language to properly define what, you know, what we mean and use that in, you know, our life. Um, yes, and if I, if I can add, um, this distinction then has, you know, didn't stop there, but eventually IDA, which is the International Disability Alliance, which is a, a huge um, international organization, also adopted these definitions in their statute. And then later on, um, the social model of disability is considered to be kind of the the foundation on what most of our legislation in Malta is, is based on, but also the American with Disabilities Act, for example, and eventually then also the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which has been um, ratified by a number of, of countries, including Malta. Wow, yeah. So these themes are things that you've talked about in your recent paper on the social construction of disability amongst Maltese counselors. Um, so yeah, these are all prevalent. Um, could you tell us a bit about the paper and your findings? Yes, of course. Um, so in my paper, the aim was um, basically to try and understand um, how Maltese counselors or counseling psychologists define disability and how they perceive their disabled clients. My interest came um, because my undergraduate degree is in psychology. And then I did I did a master's in, in disability studies, so I kind of tried to um, put the two together. Um, and I also have an interest in, in the area because I feel that um, uh, you know therapy is is, is important, um, uh, you know, and it should be accessible to everyone. So um, uh, I held you know a number of interviews with a group of um, 
counseling psychologists here in Malta. Most of them had been practicing for, for some time. Um, uh, and basically, you know, that is what I asked them. I wanted to know what, how, uh, what they understood by the term disability and how they perceived their, their clients. And the, the results that emerged from the study were mainly three. The first one is that they seem to have a, to be struggling with um, the politics usually associated with disability. For a number of years, disability has been, um, uh, tried to view it from a political aspect, you know, that it's not only a person, the personal story of the individual, but unless we try and see it from a political point of view in order to bring about change, then we're not really going to make um, uh, any changes. Um, however, the, the counseling psychologist that I interviewed seemed to be struggling with, with, with this idea, okay, that um, disability can be viewed from a politics aspect. They were also struggling with um, what we might term, you know, politically correct terms. So um, uh, at one point they, they did understand, they did claim that, you know, yes, um, disability is created by, by society for individuals because, you know, we don't, we don't create accessible spaces, etc. But then they also, you know, kind of were contradicting themselves and they went back to, but mm, is it the individual who is limiting themselves? Um, so they were kind of, you know, going back and forth with this, with this struggle. Then the second um, uh, theme that emerged was, um, I, I, I named it the deserving and undeserving. And it's, this is a, a very particular theme, which was, um, which emerged in the 1930s in the UK when there were a lot of debates um, uh, on what was then known as the poor law. So it was, was used to refer to poor people. So those poor people who are kind of deserving of um, help from the government and those who, you know, maybe did not want to work and so were, were deemed as undeserving. And I adopted this because my, uh, well, the, the participants in my research um, seemed to kind of um, use this also to disabled people. So to them, there were disabled people who were deserving of help, whereas there were those who they thought, you know, um, um, they're rude and they don't deserve the help. Um, I remember one was recounting about how, um, you know, we give them the ramps, we give them the, the wheelchair, and then, you know, they keep being kind of, you know, asking for more, that disabled people keep asking for more. Can they like, you know, be happy with, with the ramp and the wheelchair? So, you know, again, there was this, this struggle and, and this contradiction between those, those disabled people who they deemed were deserving of help and those who they thought, you know, we shouldn't really help because they're just being, um, uh, you know, asking for too much kind of. And then the third theme was that um, what emerged or what I saw that, you know, um, uh, was, was um, kind of prevalent was that they were clinging to their professional ideology. So the majority of them um, uh, said that they practice um, their, their counseling um, practice from a humanistic approach. So they were, their, their kind of their teachings were based on Carl Rogers. Um, and again, so they were struggling with this idea that uh, we shouldn't be labeling disabled people as disabled, but then they were telling me that everyone has a disability, which can be considered a bit offensive to persons with disability who actually have a disability. You know, we can't say, you know, I get into these kind of debates sometimes because that wearing, you know, uh, specs is 
a disability. It is not. I mean, wearing a specs is accepted. You know, it's it's not a disability because you can go about your life um, as you please. Whereas, you know, the real obstacles that disabled people encounter are, you know, enormous compared to that. So, um, uh, again, they were struggling. However, it also emerged that um, uh, all the, the 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 participants felt that they wanted to know more, and they felt that this kind of this aspect of um, uh, this aspect of was not part, part of their training. So they felt that they needed more training um, to be able to um, give a better service to persons with disabilities. So they acknowledged the fact that, um, uh, you know, what we call disability equality training was not part of, of their of their training and that they, you know, were kind of Tasty for to, to to know more about how they could go about um, giving a better service to persons with disabilities. Thank you. It was so interesting for me to read it, and I feel like I learned so much. Um, what implications do you feel your research has for the counseling profession more broadly? Um, yes, I think the main aspect is probably this: that we need to. Um, uh, we need to include um, uh, disability equality training or else, you know, a study unit um, on, on how to, you know, offer counseling services to persons with disability in the training courses at universities or, or wherever these are being uh, taught. Uh, because very often this is either sidelined or um, treated as a, as a speciality um, or um, and we can't go on with that, you know, because disabled people, you know, still have other problems. And that's another thing, for example, when I was conducting the the literature reviews so or the research, uh, the background research for, for this uh, paper, um, uh, a number of studies have, have spoken about how, um, you know, very often persons with disability might want to go to counseling for other, you know, issues that they encounter, which is not necessarily related to their disability. I mean, I am a disabled woman myself, and I do have relationship problems. I might have marital problems. I might um, uh, want to go, you know, to counseling for a number of, of um, other issues, and they don't necessarily have to be related to my disability. Um, accessibility is another, uh, physical access is another um, issue that, for example, Unfortunately, a number of clinics are housed in, in buildings which are not accessible um, uh, to, to persons with a physical impairment. Or again, when I was interviewing my participants, they were a bit um, kind of, you know, I told them, what, what if you had a, a person with a visual impairment or with a hearing impairment? How would you go about, um, you know, doing the, the sessions with them? And they struggled with that. And that obviously leads to the, um, then leads us to, you know, being a gap in these services for persons with disabilities. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, what do you feel in the counseling contest spe specifically kind of needs to be done to create that environment um, to support disabled people? Um, as I said, you know, the mm -hmm. training is, is very important because unless you would have had training from um, uh, in your formative years, so in, in the years that you are um, studying to become a counsellor, um, you know, this needs to be tackled. I know other grounds, for example, 
um, issues with um, with sexuality or with with gender or with race. You know, the majority of those are tackled in training, but disability unfortunately has not um, uh, is not considered at par with all the other with all those other um, uh, ground or minority issues. So unless disability you know, is, is, is given the amount of time it needs in the training process, then we're not going to have counselors. Then we're always going to have counselors who are going to stay away from, you know, giving their services to persons with disabilities because they're going to think, oh, I'm not specialized in that. Because again, they think that you need to, you know, do a particular course in order to be able to, to give your services to persons with disabilities. So um, unless it's, you know, it's, it's going to start being considered as, any other minority issue, then we're not going to make any strides. So I think it's very, very important that um, at universities, uh, you know, a study unit is dedicated to um, uh, disability. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, making it the standard to exactly to have it talked about openly and, and not be exactly. afraid to approach it. In, in and, and this will also help if, um, should any counselors in training have any biases, because mm. we all know that we all have our own, um, uh, you know, maybe misconceptions or perceptions or biases. And I know for sure that th these are treated uh, when it comes to, again, sexuality or, or race or religion. Um, however, it's not tackled when it comes to disability. So if it's tackled within, uh, you know, one is, is whilst one is doing uh, their training, their professional training, then we can really, you know, counselors can really be open to offering their services to, to everyone, including persons with disabilities. Mm, absolutely. Um, kind of shifting gears a bit, but I was wondering if you'd want to tell us a bit about your story and, and kind of how you got into the field. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, it's, very, it's been a very interesting journey, so to say. Um, so, I mean, I was a, a mechanical engineering student, which had nothing to do with what I'm doing um, at the moment. Um, I was 21 at the time, um, and I contracted meningitis. Um, I was very, very unwell, very sick. Um, uh, and in order for me to survive, basically, I was told that um, uh, both my legs would need to be amputated as well as, as my fingers. Um, so I obviously told the doctors to go ahead with that. Um, I then did go back to my engineering course at university. However, <clears throat> um, I wasn't feeling, you know, like kind of satisfied with what I was doing. And I wanted to do, I wanted to work with people. Um, I then got into, got involved in, um, uh, activism work uh, when it comes to disability rights. So um, I had decided to change courses and started uh, reading for a degree in, in psychology. At the time, I also we also discovered that I had kidney failure as an effect of the meningitis. So um, I've been living with my father's um, kidney for the past 14 years now. Um, uh, so yeah, so then I did my um, my degree in psychology. I later on went to do a master's in disability studies at the University of Leeds in the UK. I'm now um, uh, an assistant lecturer at the University of Malta, and I'm hopefully in my final years of my PhD. <laughs> and I'm looking at the social representations of disabled women in Malta. So how society um, perceives disabled women in, in our society. Mm -hmm. So yeah, could you tell us a bit about 
the challenges disabled women specifically face and kind of the experiences of disabled women specifically? Yes, um, there's obviously a lot of research about this, but, um, you know, across um, a number of uh, countries and across a number of society, it always boils down to the um, uh, to the notion that disabled women encounter a specific kind of um, discrimination, which is different to that to that that is experienced by women in general and disabled men. So even if we look at you know simple statistics, um, and this is not just in Malta or in Europe, but very often it's um, all over the world, unfortunately. Disabled women tend to fare worse when compared to um, non-disabled women and when compared to disabled men across a number of areas. So whether it's education, whether it's employment, whether it's even relationships. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the kind of their experiences um, are very nuanced. They, 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 they have a particular experience which makes them very different from um, their counterparts kind of. Um, uh, they encounter issue, negative issues, I would say, um, uh, when it comes to, to employment, again, because, you know, we all know that there are discriminatory practices towards women in general, but even more so when you are a disabled woman, um, uh, and even in, in, in education. Then there are also issues when it comes to um, uh, domestic violence, for example, so disabled women are um, uh, four times more uh, susceptible to experiencing um, domestic violence in comparison to non-disabled women. And then there are issues when it comes to reporting domestic violence, for example. Um, uh, sometimes they're not taken seriously um, uh, because there's still this idea that, you know, uh, they can't be married or they can't be in a relationship if they're disabled. Um, if they have, you know, a speech impairment, it makes it very difficult for them, obviously, to um, report. Then there are other issues with regards to how, um, uh, you know, hostels that house um, uh, women who are uh, victims of domestic violence, how accessible these hostels are. Um, so, you know, whereas it's difficult for any woman to just, you know, get up and leave the house with her kids if she's going through domestic violence, but it's even more difficult for someone with a disability, especially if you, you know, depend on a wheelchair or, you know, depend on a lift or, you know, you can't just grab your bags and run away. Um, that is obviously much more difficult for disabled women. There's also, um, you know, very specific um, abuse, especially when it comes to, to domestic violence. So it's not just you know, the, the hitting or the, um, uh, you know, the fighting, but it could be very, very specific. So not, um, uh, I don't know, not being, not being uh, you know, the, the wheelchair is kind of kept away from, from the bed, for example, when you wake up in the morning. So there are very subtle ways of how um, disabled women experience domestic violence, which makes it even more difficult uh, for them to get out of, of the vicious cycle, kind of. Um, there are also other um, experiences and obstacles related to um, uh, motherhood, for example, okay, how accessible are healthcare services for disabled women, um, how accessible are activities that, you know, we usually ex expect parents to do with their children, 
Um, I've just recently published a very small um, article um, on the on our university's newspaper about this, um, about how you know accessibility for parents is it really a fact or a fantasy? Because even from my own experience, I have a four-year-old boy, and um, uh, you know when it comes to you know attending these parent and baby clubs at the beginning, the majority of them were held in places which were inaccessible, or as I would have to stay calling before and planning ahead. Um, and these are all, you know, obstacles that, unfortunately, I mean, it's so very often so the impairment itself that makes itself that makes life difficult. But it's you no know, these obstacles that we're constantly encountering that makes, um, you know, life a bit difficult. How do you feel we should go about tackling these kind of social, socially made obstacles on? I guess the personal levels and and larger levels to kind of make societies more equitable. Ah, on a larger level, obviously, it's the legislation which brings mm. a difference. I mean, um, unless we have anti-discrimination legislation, there then you know there's not going to be any changes. And even then, you know, the enforcement of the legislation because you could have, you know, the legislation which has been passed by parliament and it's there sitting on a shelf, you know. Uh, and not doing any good. So we need enforcement. However, together with that, you know, we need to have education. So we need to be educating our societies, our youths, our children, um, uh, that, you know, what disabled people want is not charity, but what they want is, you know, their right to be able to enjoy their life as far with others, basically. Um, uh, very often, unfortunately, society is, feels I know more content with donating money towards, you know, a charitable organization rather than making the effort to not create obstacles for, for disabled people. So I think, um, you know, the legislative aspect and the education aspect go hand in hand. We can't have just the legislation or just the education, but it needs to be um, a combination of both. So we use we can also use the legislation to educate the, the, the people. Um, uh, from experience, I found also that um, disability equality training to organizations, to corporate organizations, organizations that offer a services like banks and schools, etc. Um, uh, you know, goes a long way because very and disability equality training is training which is uh, very often done by a disabled person. Um, uh, it's a very particular training. I've you know I've been doing it for a number of of years now, um, both when I used to work with the commission, but also. Now, nowadays on a, on a private uh, level. So I do a lot of training with a number of, of companies here in Moza. And I feel that connection somehow does bring about change because as soon as you put a face to, to the cause or to, or to the problem, then you know um, uh, people are more willing to kind of make the necessary changes, not just to accommodate that person, but then obviously to accommodate the rest of the, of the community. So I feel, um, uh, and this, you know, works with, with everything else. Very often you have, you know, a, a negative misconception when it comes to, I don't know, race or, or religion. And that is why we have racism and, and disabledism. Um, however, once we get to know a person um, uh, and we put a face to, to, to that problem, then somehow people are more willing to, to make the necessary changes in order to have an equitable life, as you said, for everyone. 
Well, thank you so much. Um, we're just about done today. I just wanted to ask if there's anything else you'd like to share, anything else you feel like we didn't cover today? No, no, I mean, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's been really interesting. And I hope that, you know, your um, whoever is going to be listening to, to the podcast will will also enjoy the, the, the discussion. So um, I look forward to, I don't know, um, Get, getting to know more more listeners basically or getting to know more people who have listened to, to the conversation yes thank you so thank much thank you for the opportunity anyway <laughs> yes yes i'm so grateful to have you on and to have these conversations are, are so important so i i thank you so much thank you you've reached the end of this episode with the trauma and mental health report podcast thanks for joining us connect with us at trauma.blog.yorku.ca you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. See you at the next episode.